Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. A lot of things have happened since our last episode. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, Credit Suisse was taken over by UBS, and several other pressures emerged among regional banks. These last few weeks have taken investors through a lot of twists and turns and raised questions about the risk of US recession and the extent of further Fed tightening. We entitled this season of Insights Now, A Bond's Eye View of Investing, because we wanted to try to, through the lens of bond markets, examine what these kinds of events mean for the economic outlook, the Fed outlook, and portfolio implications. On today's episode, I'm joined by Kelsey Barrow, Portfolio Manager on our Global Fixed Income, Currencies and Commodities Group, for a broad-ranging conversation on these issues and how it's shaped both the outlook going forward and the opportunities in fixed income. So Kelsey, welcome to Insights Now. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So as uh, I mentioned, we've seen significant banking turmoil in recent weeks, and this has raised some uncertainty regarding the economic outlook and the path for the Federal Reserve. Now, before this banking turmoil, recession risks were already elevated. So how does all of this change your view on the economic outlook? Right. So as you mentioned, recession risks, in our view, were already elevated before the collapse of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So maybe to take a step back in terms of what we were thinking before, um, and that will help understand how we're thinking now, um, as part of our process, we have uh, an investment quarterly where our senior investors meet uh, and they underwrite our views and outlook on the economy and the market for the upcoming three to six months. And coincidentally, our last meeting was held on Wednesday, March 8th, which was the day before all of the headlines about outflows in Silicon Valley Bank started to pop up. So heading into that meeting on March 8th, we had just spent the last three months preparing portfolios for recession, which we judged as the base case. And essentially, we felt that the cumulative and lagged impacts of monetary policy were really going to start hitting the economy hard. And as we walked into that meeting on March 8th, we were honestly impressed by how resilient the U.S. economy was to the fastest pace of rate hikes since the 1980s. We saw that there were some parts of the economy that were clearly being impacted by higher rates, particularly the housing market. So we noticed that residential investment has been contracting for seven straight quarters, and home prices have been lower month over month for the last seven months, according to the Case-Shiller Index. But then at the same time, we saw that the unemployment rate was still extremely low, the jobs market was very strong, and corporate fundamentals were also very robust. So it essentially felt like we were preparing for a recession, but so were companies in terms of reducing their leverage, terming out their debt, and keeping their cash balance balances elevated. So essentially, we walked out of that meeting on March 8th by acknowledging that the tighter policy uh, was showing up in the real economy a bit slower than we originally anticipated, but it was prudent to maintain that recession outlook as our base case. So with all that said, when the banking stresses did come along just a day later after that investment quarterly, it didn't cause us to materially change our out outlook. Um, in terms of the data we've seen since all of this stress, it's only been two weeks, so it's not really available in the economic data, but we can say that it has significantly increased our uncertainty um, around the outlook. It's increased the probability of a hard landing, and it's pulled the timing of recession forward. That's about the fact that 
credit conditions are expected to tighten uh, more materially than we had already seen heading into this. And so that's what we're going to be watching particularly closely. And what we think is most challenging for this outlook is that small banks' contribution to lending in the in the post-pandemic recovery has been uh, very outsized. And so it stands to reason, as credit conditions tighten, particularly for small banks, this could have a more material impact on growth and inflation going forward. Of course, the Federal Reserve was thinking about all of this as they met last week, um, and that we heard from them in various ways after their March FOMC meeting. How would you assess the response to the banking turmoil? Do you think they've done enough to calm market worries about perhaps a much bigger issue? That's a great question. So the speed at which this problem occurred has required essentially a very quick response. And we think that the Fed and the FDIC and the regulators have been effective at providing that quick response. Ultimately, it was a reactionary response, but it's one that buys them time to ultimately find a longer term solution. So when we look at what happened over the week of March 15th, we saw over $100 billion in deposits flow out of the small banks, so the non-top 25 banks. And we know that the Fed, um, when they were formed in 1913, was meant to be a lender of last resort and a backstop in these types of periods. So this is exactly in their wheelhouse in terms of having the tools, liquidity tools, to address this. And the announcements they made on March 12th, um, which were to backstop uninsured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, as well as create uh, a new funding facility called the Bank Term Funding Program, we think were pretty powerful signals and quick signals that have helped stabilize the market. And I would say the structure of the Bank Term Funding Program was particularly clever because one of the things that banks have been struggling with is that during the last few years, they've been buying bonds treasuries and agency mortgages when rates were low, rates have now risen, and they are they have mark-to-market losses on those bonds. And the way that the new funding facility works is it actually allows the banks to lend at par rather than the market value. So we think going forward, what the Fed has done, while it was reactionary, has bought them some time to further assess what is going on. And we think looking forward, the focus should be turning less from the liquidity crunch and more to assessing asset quality of the banks and profitability. So our analysts are focused on looking at the cost of funding, particularly for smaller banks, net interest margins, the performance of their existing loan books. We think that there may be headwinds for banks generally on these topics, but all the more reason um, to have a deep team of research and portfolio managers that can assess the banks. And also, most importantly, what we learned from this crisis is assess where you sit in the capital structure and make sure that you understand or being compensated for those risks. And of course, all of these assessments and calculations depend to some extent on what do you think the Federal Reserve is going to do? And they seem they seem very determined in their communications to keep rates at a high level all year. But markets seem to have a very different expectation. So do you think that the Fed will be forced to cut rates before the end of the year? 
It is our expectation that the Fed will cut rates before the end of the year, but I would agree uh, with with those who say that it is too soon to cut rates now, particularly because inflation, uh, as it stands today, is too high. So the hurdle for them to cut rates in the very short term is high, but we do think as the year evolves, uh, they will be cutting rates to address a weaker uh, economic backdrop and inflation that has come down further. And the way we view it, if the Fed stops at four and seven eighths and holds the policy rate at those levels for one or two quarters, we don't view that as abandoning the the fight on inflation. In fact, we view that as maintaining restrictive policy and letting the work of QT and the 475 basis points of rate hikes so far play out and do that work for them. So in our view, one of the biggest things that we took away from the press conference in March was an important observation that Chair Powell made about the impact of tightening credit conditions as equivalent to rate hikes. So there's a lot of uncertainty about how many rate hikes and how much credit conditions are going to tighten on the back of this. Um, But we do think that the balance of risk is shifting and the Fed is acknowledging that, particularly on the inflation side. So there are 19 FOMC participants that submit forecasts. 17 back in December saw the risks to core PCE as weighted to the upside. That's come down to just 11. So the consensus is moving from risks to the upside to broadly balanced. And we see it in the survey data as well. We really like to look at something called the uh, NFIB Small Business Survey, which asks businesses about what they expect to do in terms of their prices over the next three months. And that survey is at some of the lowest levels since the first quarter of 2021, and it tends to correlate actually fairly well with core PCE um, and suggests that inflation will be coming down and and that will be less of a headwind that will prevent the Fed from easing policy later in the year. This particular economic situation and the Fed's response to it has left us with a pretty sharply downwardly sloping yield curve. And so I, I guess my question is twofold. One, what's the yield, this downwardly sloping yield curve telling us and what would it take to make it positively sloped again? So I think when talking about the yield curve, uh, we have to acknowledge that in the very short term, there has been a ton of rate volatility um, and particularly in the front end of the yield curve. So that's been whipping around the yield curve steeper and flatter on any given day, given the risk sentiment. And in fact, rate volatility is measured by the move is at some of the highest levels since the pandemic and actually also since the great financial crisis. And so there's a difference uh, as a portfolio manager in terms of talking about the day-to-day moves in the curve and what we think over the medium term. So, you know, talking about the medium term, we do believe that we are shifting from a regime of curve flattening to one of curve steepening. And the way that happens first is you have to move from an inverted curve to a flat curve. So what we're seeing right now is the curve becoming less inverted as the market anticipates rate cuts. Now, you don't tend to see that aggressive steepening and 
inversion or move back into positively sloping territory until the Fed actually starts to cut rates. So there is a bit of uncertainty here in terms of the timing. If you look back historically, once the Fed stops hiking rates, that period of time of waiting before the Fed cuts can be anywhere between one month or two years. But in our view, what the Fed has done in terms of QT and rate hikes being fairly aggressive in this cycle means that that waiting time between the last hike and the first cut is going to be shorter this time. Another question I've got is that with all this concern about the banking system, it sort of reminds me a little bit of 2018 that a lot of people ask me, what's the next shoe to drop? What else could go wrong here? So do you have any other potential areas of concern? That is absolutely the question that we're asking ourselves as well. Um, and I would start by saying that we have a deep research and portfolio management team of over 300 professionals around the world. And what we're doing right now is we're stress testing all of the bonds in our portfolio against adverse scenarios and cleansing the ones from the portfolio that don't stand up to those adverse scenarios. So there's a couple things that we have our eye on. One is private credit and two is commercial real estate. So I'll talk quickly about both. On the private credit side, we don't directly invest in private credit, of course. We're public market debt investors. But there's a few reasons why it matters to us. So first, the size of the market alone is something that catches our eye. So the private credit market has gone from one that was just a fraction of the size of the U.S. high-yield market to uh, essentially the same size. So at the end of 2022, you saw the U.S. high yield market was at $1.4 trillion in value. The private credit market is also at $1.3 trillion in value. And what we've been observing is that deals that public investors weren't willing to sponsor in the private market or in the public market went into the private market. And those deals tended to be of weaker credit fundamentals. And we're seeing that borne out in the default data. So if you look at where private credit defaults peaked in COVID, it was around 8%. That was about two percentage points higher than the U.S. high-yield market. And if you look at defaults now, private credit defaults are around 2%, and that's also uh, higher than what the default rates is in the public market currently. So our concern here as public investors is if the private credit markets tend to take losses because it's a more illiquid market, the selling pressure as investors look to de-risk could come from selling a public high yield rather than that private credit that they can't get rid of. So that's the first thing we're thinking about. The second one uh, is the commercial real estate market. So I first want to say that the commercial real estate market is a very large market, and I don't want to lump all of it together. There's a number of different categories. You have multifamily, you have office space, you have industrial. Most of the headlines and concern is coming out of the office space. But there are some headwinds more broadly for real estate, as you can imagine, that have been growing for a while. We know that rates are rising, that cap rates were too low, and certainly in the office space, there's a lot of uncertainty about what we're going to be doing in the future about um, working from home versus working in the office. Now, what has really changed here and brought a new level of stress and scrutiny to this market has been the stress in the regional banking system. 
And that's because the regional banking system is an extremely important part of the ecosystem for commercial real estate. So about 70% of the commercial real estate loans um, are in the non-top 25 banks. And so it stands to reason if these smaller banks are to cut back, there are certain sectors that are going to be more impacted by that cutback in lending, and that commercial real estate uh, is going to potentially be one of those places. Now, it's not a blanket statement. We do think there's a lot of uh, property that is going to continue to do well. But again, it speaks to the need to have a very deep research team that is going to be able to look through every single individual property, find out which ones are going to be challenged by this tighter credit conditions and liquidity standpoint, and, and those that are going to make it through because um, they have the proper characteristics to thrive in this new world. And I suppose those issues that you raised, and I think they're the great issues to think about, uh, along with the, just the general macroeconomic uh, uncertainty, has led to a backup in spreads in the high yield market. But now that we've seen some backup in spreads, do you think that high yield looks more attractive or do you think we still need to see a little more widening of spreads? Yeah, David, I'll give you the uh, quick answer, which is we think we need to see more widening in spreads. Um, how much widening is up for the debate. So we know that the high yield index is of higher quality than it has been in the past. And also there's been a lot of high yield issuers that have already defaulted out either in the pandemic or um, in the energy uh, issues back in 2015 and 2016. But historically, high yield spreads tend to widen in a recession to 600 or 800 basis points over treasuries, and we're still not even close to some of those levels. So we do still feel that there's a bit of complacency here. And ideally, what we want in our portfolios is liquidity and to stay high quality so that we have the dry powder when spreads do widen out to take advantage of that. So, okay, given that, I, I get what you're saying about high yield, that was pretty clear. But where are you seeing opportunities within fixed income? So as I mentioned, high quality fixed income is where we're focused. So there's a number of sectors that fit that bill. You have government bonds, of course, fit that bill. Investment grade credit also fits that bill. You know, despite the recent banking stress, there's plenty of well-positioned industrial and non-cyclical companies that are going to perform well and provide a yield advantage to government bonds. You know, another area that we are looking at is agency mortgage-backed securities. So the advantage there is that it's fully guaranteed by the U.S. government, and it does come at a decent spread to treasuries. The one thing that you need to be aware of, though, with agency mortgage-backed securities is that they, they have something called uh, negative convexity or prepayment risk, which makes them not always perform as well in periods of high rate volatility. So the way that we're approaching agency mortgage-backed securities is with a lot of attention towards security selection and where we uh, invest in the coupon stack to make sure that you know we're protected and, and compensated for some of that negative convexity risk. One other area I'll give a shout out to, you know, outside the core high quality fixed income is EM local debt. You know, this has been an area that we've been focused on so far in 2023. The story here is that central banks and EM started hiking well before developed markets. And at this point, they have very high real yields and central banks are looking to pause there. 
Now, what's different about EM Local now than in the past is that there's a lot of their debt is domestically held. So it's not as driven by the whims of uh, tourists and hot money. And finally, one of the other tailwinds we see for the EM Local debt space is the weaker dollar which we think is going to be a trend that continues throughout the year as the Fed uh, turns away from hiking and towards and cutting. So one other sort of broader question is last year, of course, was a very difficult year for balanced investors because you saw this huge sell-off in the stock market, but that was actually made worse by a big sell-off in the bond market, which is a very unusual occurrence. Um, with the Fed now nearing the end of its tightening cycle, do you think that the negative, traditional negative stock bond correlation is going to reassert itself? So this is definitely the good news. Uh, we do think that that right-way correlation between stocks and bonds is reasserting itself and also has reasserted itself during the month of March. Um, we've seen uh, bonds perform well this month while we've seen stress in risk assets and in equity markets. And I think it's important to understand why uh, bonds didn't work so well as a diversifier, as a hedge last year to understand why we think they're going to work this year. And the real factor there was inflation and the central bank's response. We saw high inflation. The central banks needed to respond. What we're seeing now, uh, in our view, is the market starting to anticipate those trends going in reverse. And so as the economy um, weakens, the market can expect incremental policy easing and bonds will work as a diversifier again in your portfolio. Okay. All right. Last question. And then and thank you very much, Kelsey, for all these, these uh, very insightful answers. Uh, but we are seeing some pretty outsized, outsized flows into money market funds. Um, do you think this is a sign that investors are uncertain about the future and how should they manage that uncertainty? So we would agree uncertainty is very high right now, and we would admit that we don't have all the answers. So what we've been doing is positioning portfolios conservatively to manage this uncertainty. And we have noticed the flows into money market funds. We do think that that is uh, a signal that people are uncertain. Um, but we would note that when you think about the yield in a money market fund, you know, currently around four and a half or five percent, while that does look attractive in the short run, what you will face in the future is reinvestment risk. So if rates are only at five percent for the next three months, you're not actually going to receive or return five percent. You're only going to return one and a quarter percent. You only get that 5% if rates are at 5% for the next 12 months. So what we're encouraging uh, investors to look at and consider is a diversified portfolio that does have some of those long duration bonds as well to lock in the higher rates while you can. And the question we're really being get, getting asked right now by clients is, did we miss the opportunity to get into bonds given the large move lower in yields you know, over the past few weeks? And our answer to that would be no. You haven't missed the opportunity. Yields are still significantly higher than they were a year ago. Real yields, for instance, are near their highest levels in 15 years. We went from a period where there was $18 trillion in negative yielding debt to very little today outside of Japan. And investment grade yields, just for an example, on a global scale are about three, 
8% higher than they were in December 2021. So the way I would see it is at the start of 2023, we were saying bonds are back. Now it feels like bonds are here and we expect them to stick around um, for the rest of the year. That's good to hear. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us, Kelsey. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode where I'll be joined by Ian Steely, our Chief Investment Officer for International Fixed Income, to discuss bond opportunities outside of the US, the outlook on global central banks, and what this might mean for the US dollar. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes of the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in markets and the economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.